Well, good morning. It is great to have you here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Bickett. Um, Pastor Brent and family are on vacation, so I have the privilege of speaking with you today, and I'm excited about that. But before we get too much further, like Tanya said during announcements, if it's your first time here, or even if it's your 700th time here, I don't know if that actually works out mathematically. <laughs> if you've been here a lot, it's a safe place for you. It's a place that we want you to come and be comfortable. It's a place that we want you to come and ask questions. We want you to make connections with other people. We want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. And so just know that wherever you are in your walk right now with God, whether you've been doing it for what seems like forever, or if you're even questioning, is there really a God out there and does he actually care? This is a safe place for you to bring all of that. So this morning, we're talking about our series, Hidden Heroes, and we're about halfway through. And if you've missed any, I would encourage you to go online and check them out. They have been really good and really practical. And today, we're going to hit a gentleman named Mordecai, who's known for his strategic influence. But before we get there, I need to take another brief time out, because we actually have a lot of hidden heroes within this room. For those of you who don't know, I have been on a learning journey, we'll call it, for about the last seven years. I've been going through a process called ordination, where I take classes, and I've been learning, and it just um, is what pastors do to help them learn how to pastor better, just like when you go to school to become a teacher, we have classes to become pastors as well. And so when I say there's hidden heroes, what I mean is I want to say thank you to everyone in this room who has ever prayed for me, said a kind word, encouraged me, because doing something like that is a big deal. Um, anything we undertake in our life where we're reaching towards a goal is a big deal, and it's not something that we can ever or should ever do alone. And so from the bottom of my heart, for those that have been a part of this journey in any manner whatsoever over the last seven years, thank you. All right, so let's get into it. We're talking about Mordecai, and I'm going to say it Mordecai because that's how I have been hearing it in my head ever since I've known his name. If you actually listen to Google Translation, it says Mordecai, and that's going to mess me up. So if you're used to Mordecai, please hang with me with my American ease as I say Mordecai. He is Esther's uncle. Now, Esther is one that you may have heard of who was queen, and she got to be there in kind of an unconventional way. And Mordecai, her uncle, who raised an adopter after her parents died, is very significant in her life. Esther is known for going before the king because the Jews were set to be exterminated. That's going to be the background for our story. So now let me get you from where I am up to date. Esther and Mordecai are two Jews. They're living in the nation of Persia, specifically in the citadel of Susa. Now what you have to know here is that Jews are the minority. They were actually captured and carried out of Jerusalem, their home, and taken across the nation to Susa to live as captives, as slaves. So that is the setting that Esther and Mordecai are working under. While they are living there, the king, who is King Xerxes, had actually had an extravagant banquet that lasted about 180 days because it's thought to be believed it was actually for war planning. And then after the 180-day banquet, he held a seven-day banquet that he opened up to everybody. 
Now, during the seven-day banquet, I'm guessing during the 180-day banquet also, but it specifically says that he became drunk, and he calls for his queen, who is Vashti, to come and present herself before the men in their banquet. Now, Vashti was having her own banquet for the women, and she refused. She said no. Now, in today's culture, we're like, okay, she said no. In that time, it was a huge, huge mistake. The king was so enraged that he sought his advisors and said, the queen has refused me, so what can I do? And the advisors said to him, well, this is what we'll do. We'll make a law. We'll make a decree that Vashti's never to be in your presence again, and she can no longer be queen. So that is what they did. Mordecai and Esther are still living in, don't understand what's going on at this point. And the king goes off to war and comes back. Now when he comes back, he realizes he no longer has a queen, and he's kind of bothered by that. So his advisors again come up with a brilliant scheme. They said, let's do this. Let's go around the nation and round up all the virgins, and we'll bring them in, and we'll present them before you, and then you can pick your new queen from them. And the king says, that's a fantastic plan. Let's do it. So they gather up all of the virgins in the nation, and this is where Esther begins to enter the picture. She is one of the young virgins that gets gathered, gets taken to the palace, and put into the king's harem. Now, before he can choose, the young ladies have to go through a year of preparation before they can be presented to him. During this year of preparation, I'm assuming that they're learning a lot of things like how to be queen, since they have no knowledge of that, but the Bible's not specifically clear. What it is clear on is that every day during this year, while Esther was in the palace being prepared, Mordecai, her uncle, walked back and forth by the courtyard to check in on her and see how she was doing. So after this year gets up of her training and preparation, she goes before the king, and he finds favor with her. Now before she had found favor with the king, she had found favor with the head eunuch who was in charge of all of these women and getting them prepared. So much so that he gave her seven maids of her own, gave her a special treatment, gave her special diet, and then put her in the best room in the entire harem. So she found favor with Haggai. She goes before the king. She finds favor with the king. And he decides that she is the best, and he falls in love with her and says, you are my new queen now. So now Esther has gone from being a Jewish slave to queen. And she's in a unique situation. Mordecai has told her, do not tell them about your family background, and do not tell them that you are Jewish. Because at this time, there is still racial tensions against the Jews. And they don't know what would have resulted if they found out she was Jewish. So what I want you to do right now is just pause for a moment and think, who in your life has been influential? Who in your life has helped you in any way whatsoever that was significant? Chances are pretty good that you had a relationship with them that they spoke into your life in some manner, that they were there for you. This is what Mordecai has done for Esther her entire life, and now he has done it to the point of helping her become queen. You see, when we talk about strategic influence and we talk about Mordecai, what we have to realize is that strategic influence happens through relationship. 
It doesn't just happen out of the blue. It doesn't just happen overnight. It happens through developing a relationship. So when we think about the person that invested in you, what was it that made that significant? Was it their words or their actions? Maybe it was just their presence. They were there with you through a really difficult time. Maybe they encouraged or they challenged you to step out when you needed to. You see, Mordecai had been speaking into Esther's life as she grew up, spoke into her life when she was taken into a situation she had no understanding about, and then continued speaking into her life after that because he wanted to help guide her. We see results of strategic influence in a lot of different ways. For Esther, it was the ability to become queen because this now opened up the door for her to have strategic influence. You see, not that long ago, I heard a couple of stories from some of the Northridge kids team. It was stories from teachers, and this is what actually makes me just come to life. There's a lot of times when we invest in things and we wonder, is it worth it? And I'm sure there were times when Mordecai was walking every day past her courtyard where he thought, is it worth it? But when I heard a couple of stories from my teachers, there's no doubt left in my mind that when we invest in relationships, it's worth it. You see, there was one day where a teacher had said, you know what, I was in the big service. We have to call it the big service because kids, little service, little kids, you got it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transfer into kids speak for a while. The teacher said to me, you know what, I was in big service. And one of the kids came running up to me and just gave me the biggest hug and said, I had a good day today. This is a preschooler who decided to seek out an adult and tell her he had a good day today. I had another teacher who said to me, you know what, Chris, I've been watching this little one that's not so little anymore going into the kids' class. I had them in the nursery. I have watched them grow from crawling on the floor through the preschool classroom, and now they're going into the big kids' class. That's because of relationship. That's strategic influence and investment. I can tell you relationship matters when we have teenagers that want to volunteer and serve in the Northridge Kids area because they have grown up in it and they know the power of what happens in those classrooms. I can tell you relationships matter when a student does not want to live kids camp because over that week they have been invested in so heavily and significantly that they cannot break that bond. But the amazing thing is all of these relationships continue to grow and they continue to go into new areas and they continue to have more and more significant impact. We know for a fact that Mordecai's relationship with Esther is significant and is influential because of the last line in this paragraph I'm going to read to you. It's from Esther chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It says, Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, this is all the women that had not been selected. They no longer stayed in the harem where the virgins were. They had to go to the other harem because now they were no longer virgins. And Mordecai had become a palace official. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. 
She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. So now that Mordecai has become a royal official, he has more influence. But do you notice what it says? It says, Esther, she was still following his directions just as she did when she lived at home. In other words, he had built enough trust and relationship with her growing up that she continued to listen to him once she became queen. She's no longer in his household. She has a higher position than he does, and she does not have to listen to him, but she chooses to. And this relationship pays off because Mordecai, now that he is a royal official and he's working at the king's gate, overhears of a plot to assassinate the king. Now Mordecai can't go to the king directly, so what he does is he sends message to Esther, who then takes this message and gives it to the king, who then has it investigated and finds out that it's true. So these perpetrators are then executed, of course, and it's written into the history book with Mordecai's name. So not only does Mordecai have influence with Esther now, he has had influence into the king's life. You see, the other thing that helped Mordecai have significant influence and strategically speak into her life was the fact that he was consistent. Every day he walked the courtyard. He continued to maintain his relationship. He continued to do things that were right, such as telling the king about the plot. Strategic influence happens through consistency. And when we are consistent, it doesn't matter what we're consistent in, it gets noticed. In fact, sometimes we have to trust because when we get noticed, it's not always a good thing. In Mordecai's case, when he was at the gate, there's a gentleman that he refused to bow to. Now, this is significant because this gentleman had been elevated to the ranking of second in command by the king, and the king had declared that any royal official he walked past must bow to him. Mordecai refused to do so. You see, Mordecai refused to do so because he was being consistent with his faith. Because he was Jewish, he could put no other gods before God. In other words, if he were to bow down to some human, he was saying that they were more powerful than God, and he refused to do that. And this enraged Haman so much that he was not only satisfied in trying to destroy Mordecai, he decided, let's destroy his entire race. These Jews are troublemakers, let's just get rid of them. In fact, this is what he says in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 11 through 11. So then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered all through the provinces and your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree so that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited into the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision, by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadetha the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. See how I said that real fast? If there's a word you don't know, go fast. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. Now you notice Haman is not being completely forthright with the king here. 
He doesn't tell them who the people are. He doesn't tell them what they're doing. All he says is that they are different and they're not following your laws. He doesn't say it is one guy who is not following your declare to bow to me. See, Haman has personal influence in this, but there's also a long history that goes back behind it. Haman and Mordecai's ancestors actually had trouble with each other way back when. And they didn't like each other. And we're not getting into that story today because it would take quite a while to explain. But basically, because of some disobedience to what God had asked, there came a separation. And then, throughout the years, came back around. But there is still that underlying tension between the two. You see, once Haman has the signet ring, he has complete control. So he casts lots and decides on a date that he wants to have this happen. The date happens to be 11 months in the future, and he writes out a decree that says that the entire Jewish population, from youngest to oldest, men and women, is to be killed, eliminated, all of them on this one day. When Mordecai receives the news, he's absolutely devastated. Because what has happened is Haman took the signet ring and sealed the decree, which means that it can no longer be repealed for any reason by any person, including the king. Haman has just issued an absolute irreversible death sentence to every person who is Jewish. So Mordecai puts on sackcloths and ashes, which are symbols for mourning, and he weeps loudly outside the palace. And you have to keep in mind that Mordecai is actually a royal official. So this is very out of character for what he normally does. Hester is told what is going on. She sends out a servant to try to figure it out. Sends out some clothes for Mordecai so that they can possibly talk. And he refuses. So she sends another message and says, what is going on? So Mordecai sends the decree back with the messenger and says, you have to go before the king. And this absolutely terrifies Esther. Because there's a law that says no one can go before the king unless he summons them. In other words, for them to show up in his presence without being called for most likely will result in death. And she says this to the messenger who takes it back to Mordecai. I can't do this. If I go before the king without being summoned, there's a high chance I'll be killed. So Mordecai sends back his response. It's in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. That may be a line that some of you have heard before. For such a time as this. We often use it for encouragement and motivation 
Maybe you are placed here for such a time as this. Maybe this is why you got that job. Maybe this is why you moved into that house. Maybe this is why you took that side road instead of the main road for such a time as this. To inspire and to motivate. And let me be clear, I absolutely believe that that is what is going on. But I also believe that Mordecai has even more strategic influence in these words than we realize. This is what I think he is also saying. I think he's saying to Esther, consider who you are before you were king, queen. Consider the fact that this is bigger than you. Consider the fact that your position in the palace does not change the fact that you are a Jew. That is who you are. I think Mordecai is giving her a swift kick in the butt. I think he's saying you need to wake up and realize what is going on. I think he's calling her out, and I think he's challenging her and saying you're not going to be safe. That palace is not going to protect you just because you're removed from the ordinary Jews in the land. You see, I think a lot of times we create our own palaces, our own safe places, because maybe we've worked long and hard to get to whatever it is we've wanted. Maybe we're in a place where we finally feel comfortable and we haven't felt comfortable for a long time. Maybe it's a fact that we finally can have that thing we wanted that we worked so long for. Maybe we're just safe. But yet we feel that little nudge. We feel that little discontent in our stomach that just won't quite go away. We feel the little pitter-patter of the heart going a little bit faster because we're like, what if? I think Esther was feeling that. I think a lot of times we say, you know what, I'm in my place, I'm good. So um, God, you realize that little flutter, that little pitter-patter is God. I'm good, thanks. No, I'll stay here. Let me just push it to the side. Let me just ignore it. Nope, I'm good. Mordecai tells Elster, you can't escape. You will be killed, and your family will be killed. But make no mistake, if you choose to do nothing, help will arise from another place. In other words, God will take care of us, even if you choose to say no to him right now. But it will come at a great cost to you, your life. You see, when we look at it as being a challenge or a kick in the pants instead of just inspiration and motivation, it changes the way we process things. It forces us to think, maybe right now I am in this place to do something more than I want to do. Maybe I'm being called to do the hard thing, to take the risk. This was Esther's response. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. 
My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You see, I think Mordecai strategically influenced the queen by courageously challenging her thinking, by calling her out and making her look at her justification. She didn't want to stand up against a man-made law to do what God was calling her to do until Mordecai said, think about it. So after three days of fasting, Esther goes before the king because Mordecai had gathered all the Jews and they had been supporting her as well. The king receives her, which is a miracle, and says, what is it that you want? Up to half of the kingdom. And she says, what I want is for the king and Haman to come to a banquet that I've prepared for you. So the king says, get Haman right now, let's go. And they head off and they have the banquet and Haman is thrilled to be exclusively invited to this banquet with just the queen and the king. That is, he's thrilled until he leaves the banquet and sees Mordecai and sees him refusing to bow. And so Haman is so angered, he goes home and complains to his family and friends and they say, well, why don't you just build a gallows like 70 feet high and hang him on it? Right? It's the law. And Haman says, yeah, that's a great idea. So he has it done that night. In the morning, Haman wakes up, and he's excited, and he goes in to present to the king this plan to kill Mordecai and to explain what is going on. Only before he can even get a word out, the king says to him, hey, um, I need to ask you a question. What should be done for someone the king wishes to honor? And Haman, in his pride and his ego, was like, whoa, 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 this is for me. Here we go. Only what Haman didn't realize was the night before, while he was busy having the gallows built for Mordecai, the king couldn't sleep. And so as every good king does, he calls for his royal history book to be read to him in the middle of the night. And as they're reading the history book, he discovers that Mordecai has never been honored for revealing the plot to assassinate the king, which ultimately saved the king's life. Great bedtime stories. My kids have missed out. So, Haman is thinking, I'm going to be honored. And this is what he says. Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horses be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse." Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. In other words, he's saying this person should look and be on the king's horse. He is so worthy. Excellent, the king says to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. 
who sits at the gates of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. Oh, can you feel Haman's stomach drop? Do this for Mordecai the Jew, the one that you hate so much you just had a gallow built to hang him on. And now you get to parade him around the city in all of this opulence, shouting, this is what happens to the man the king wishes to honor. I can picture Haman's face, and I can picture the whiplash in his head as he is trying to figure out what has just happened. I love the response that happens after this. In Esther 6, verse 12, it says, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate. In other words, after being paraded around the city and shouted about and shown off, he decides the next thing I should do is go back to work. So he goes back to work. But Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. And you see, unfortunately, there's times where I have felt like Haman. I have gotten so wrapped up in my own pride and ego of what I thought was good or best, what I have planned and strived for, only to have it be completely destroyed, that I was humiliated. I think that happens to all of us. But I think we also need to look to Mordecai's response, which was after this, he returned back to work. He goes back to his normal. He's being consistent. During this time when Haman goes home with his tail between his legs and he begins venting again, the second banquet is called by the queen. And so Haman is escorted off to have another banquet with just the queen and king. It's at this banquet when the king asks her again, Esther, what is it that you want up to half of the kingdom? That she says, sir, I just need you to save me and my family. And she brings out the decree and you sa she says, there's been this law that is to exterminate all of these people. And they have done nothing wrong, but it's been set. And you just need to know that if this law is carried out, that I will perish as well, because I am a Jew. This is the first time that Esther has revealed that she is a Jew. And you can imagine Haman's horror upon hearing this. Because it's no longer he's getting rid of Mordecai and all of those troublesome Jews. He's now eliminating the king's queen. And the king is infuriated. To condense the story, Haman does a couple more things wrong. And the king ends up having Haman hung on the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai. So Haman is now out of the picture. And Esther one more time goes before the king and says, Sir, we need to be able to save my people. And the king says, Esther, I cannot repeal that law. It was sealed with my ring. He says, but what you can do 
is create a new decree. And he gives Mordecai the signet ring that he had given to Haman. So now Mordecai has the same amount of power that Haman, who wished to destroy him, had. So Queen Esther and Mordecai create a new decree that gives the Jews the ability to defend themselves and attack anyone that would attack them that is issued for the same exact date that Haman's decree was issued. And when that day arrives, the Jews end up victorious. Because what had happened in the months between was Mordecai had risen in power through the palace and the officials and the royal guards all became fearful as he rose in power because he had influence. And Mordecai didn't just influence the guards, he also influenced all of the Jews that were around them. So the Jews end up victorious on this day. They end up defeating all of the enemies that had made plans to destroy them and eliminate them. And this comes about because of Mordecai and Esther. You see, Mordecai stood up for his beliefs. He stood up for his faith. He had consistent investment in all of these areas. But he didn't stop once he was able to save his people. We see this in Esther chapter 10, verse 3. It says, Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister, the authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. Mordecai didn't just stop at the one big thing. He kept working for the good of his people and for all of their descendants. You see, for such a time as this can be one moment. But it can also be a series of moments, and it can also be seasons. We are put in places for reasons, and it's not always just for us to be comfortable. Sometimes it's for us to do the hard thing, to take that challenge, to step into whatever it is that God is asking for us that makes us uncomfortable. You see, the interesting thing is, if you read through the entire book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned once in this book. There's been a lot of debate by people smarter than me about whether or not this book should be included in the Bible because it doesn't mention God. The conclusion has been drawn that it should be in the Bible, which is why if you open it up, it's in there. But I think there's something else even more important here. If we look at the story of Esther and we look at Mordecai and we look at all of the events, it is quite apparent that God's hand was present and moving throughout the entire story. If you read it, you might say, there's a lot of coincidences here. Like Mordecai just happened to be at the gate when he hears of the plot. Mordecai just happens to come up in the king's book when he's sleepless. The dreams just happen to happen for the king to keep him up at night. Just happens that 
Esther goes before the king and he's in a good mood and accepts her. But what I would ask you to consider is that these aren't coincidences. These are God at work, going before and planning and preparing and helping them through. And I think if you're like me, sometimes life feels like the book of Esther, where you don't hear or you don't see God's presence. It feels like maybe we're kind of just going along, doing life, and there's a few coincidences that are kind of good, but there's a lot more going wrong. It feels like because we don't sense God near us, if you believe in him, or because things haven't changed the way you want them to change, that maybe he isn't really there. But what I would say is I don't think that's true. I know that's not true. Because I've gone through enough dark times in my life to know that the only way I came out of them was because God was with me and carrying me when I couldn't do it myself. You see, if I get kind of personal, there are times when I struggle with trusting what God is asking me to do and if I'm able to do it. There are times when I struggle thinking, you know, I just don't feel God right now. I'm going through the motions. I say I'm a Christian and I'm a believer, but it doesn't feel like God's doing anything right now. It doesn't feel like things are coming together. And I wonder, am I doing something wrong? Have I moved out of God's will? Have I made a mistake and I'm getting punished? I'm guessing some of you may have had a few of those thoughts. But I think when we look back to the life of Mordecai, we realize it's during those darkest times that God is really closest that he's actually helping and preparing, and that he's moving. When I was walking on State Street last night with my family, I'm looking around, and we're entering a new season. We had information day this week, and we got to go to three schools, elementary and middle and high school, for the first time. And some of you have been there, and you're like, it's okay, Chris, you'll get through it. And I think you're liars. <laughs> Not really, but kind of. So this new high school appear, you know, is approaching, this experience, this new season. And um, when we're down on State Street, I'm looking around at all of the influences that State Street has to offer. And I'm realizing in four years... The wings are clipped, and the chiclet is out of the nest. Am I ready? Is the chiclet ready? It comes down to trusting that God's word is true, whether we believe it or not. When we strategically invest, when we strategically influence, it stays with whoever we are putting into. 
You see, I have to trust that my children are going to make mistakes and that they're going to seek guidance and help. I have to trust that what has been invested into them until the point that they leave my household will help them make wise decisions. But I also have to trust that God has them much more than I ever could. The influences will not disappear. The hard times, the negativity will not go away. It's something that we will always have. But how we choose to respond, how we choose to trust when we don't sense and we don't feel matters because it has been woven in to who they are. So this week when I was having a moment of doubt, I opened up my Bible. And what I read was something I had read a long time ago, and I had actually made notes next to it. And the notes said something along the lines of, it's not about me, it's about him. Let him do the work. Now some of you may be thinking Paul's in for a lot of work. But that's not who I was talking about. Let God do the work. It wasn't a coincidence that that was the passage I opened up to. It was God reminding me he's in control. He always has been and he always will be. And what we strategically put into our lives and how we strategically influence others matters. So what influence are you going to use today? Where is it that maybe you need to step out of your safe palace in order to say yes to something that makes you a little uncomfortable? Where can you strategically start developing a relationship that you've been hesitant or said no on, that God's given you that nudge? Where is it that you can become consistent because the consistency pays off when other people notice? Where is it that you can become courageous and move past your excuses, even if it might cost you? Mordecai began a normal Jew, and he ended a normal Jew. It was simply a matter his strategic influence reached further because he kept saying yes to what God was asking him to do and speaking into the lives of others and creating change for the better. I think it's something that we all can model. I think it's something that we all can do. And so I challenge you this week to find that spot and to be brave and step into it. I'm going to close with prayer, and then we're going to sing a final song. And as we sing the words for that song, I want you to actually listen to the message that's in them. The message that comes out is important. When we sing songs, it's not always just to make us feel good. It's to remind us to what God is calling us to. Will you pray with me, please?